All right. Good morning, guys. I hope you're well. Let's uh, flip over to Acts 16, and we'll keep going uh, in the Bible today. Huh? Sound like a plan? All right. So last week uh, we kind of finished off the uh, Acts 15, got into Acts 16, and we talked about. Uh, remember, Paul and uh, Barnabas have split ways now. I can't uh, emphasize enough that. It's not that Barnabas kind of goes off into Never Never Land and is, becomes like not the servant of God or something like that anymore um, after their disagreement, right? They just have a disagreement, and it's over John Mark. And, and in that disagreement, Barnabas and who he is, right? His name is not Barnabas, it's Joseph. Barnabas is a title that's given to him by the apostles, and it means son of encouragement. And so John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas. We don't know anything about it. It was a very negative uh, thing that happened is so negative that when they decide to visit the churches again, Paul says, no, we can't take John Mark with us. And Barnabas says, yes, we need to take John Mark. And really what it boils down to is not uh, a, uh, a sin or not sin, a moral or immoral. It comes down to two guys with two different philosophies. And Barnabas, he's the son of encouragement. Remember, Barnabas is the guy who introduces Paul to all the people in Jerusalem who were scared to death of him. Uh, it's Barnabas, his whole ministry. He observes the grace of God in Antioch. He goes and gets Paul to bring them to teach them. His whole heart is reconciliation and encouragement. And he says, we got to take John Mark. He forsook us. Let's give this guy a second chance. Paul's heart, is, he says, no way. He says, he left us in the ministry. It would be Paul who would write that above all, the servant of the Lord must be found faithful. It would be Paul that would write, he says, every day I have the anxiety of all the churches on my shoulders. And he talks about teaching the word and all these things. It was so important to Paul to have reliable teaching to make sure that the churches could get the, the teaching that they need. So you have two very excellent points, right? None of us are going to go, no, we need never second chances. We need to hose those people. We wouldn't say that. It's a good perspective to have. And on the other side, we can probably all agree, you know what? When you're involved in important things, you need reliable people around you. So for them, it became an insurmountable difference, and they part ways. And 10 years later, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, would say, make the point that, look, Barnabas has the right to be supported by the work just like I do, and that we both have the right to be supported and to have a wife with us. In other words, he, he's putting his seal of approval. Barnabas is still going strong. A decade later, it was just two different ideas, right? So when, Bar when uh, Barnabas grabs Mark and they go to Cyprus, and Paul grabs Silas, and they start their journey into Derby, into Lystra. So if you recall, last week we talked about they show up. And one of the most important things in, in building the kingdom of heaven is really the ability and the willingness to lay aside uh, religious liberty. Not a political statement, but in a sense, remember what happens. They show up. They have, it's him and Silas. They have the letter from the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. The letter that says, you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. But we're asking you, as Gentiles, don't eat things that have been strangled, don't eat blood, don't fornicate, and don't eat things sacrificed to idols. And they say the reason we're asking you not to do this is so that Jews and Gentiles can coexist in the church together, right? It's that letter that they're carrying, that when they show up to, to uh, Lystra and they see Timothy, and Timothy's father is a Greek and his mother is a Jew, and they, he observes that Timothy is walking with the Lord, loves the Lord, loves the people. Everybody there speaks well of Timothy. He's a good guy to have on the journey. 
So he says, Timothy, I want you to come with me. And he says, here's the thing, you have to be circumcised. The reason he has to be circumcised is so that he can minister to the Jews. It is interesting that his ministry will be bringing a letter that says, you do not have to be circumcised to be saved. But Paul says, I need you to get circumcised so that we can go to the Jews and deliver this letter. And then he's willing to do that. The actual physical act of having his foreskin removed, not at a clinic, right? They don't go down to the local clinic, not by a surgeon, but probably either by a priest or maybe Paul himself with like, you know, a Bronze Age, Iron Age knife. That's how it goes down. So he does it. And, and here's the thing. Does he have the right to not be circumcised? Of course he does. Does he have, who's going to look? Who's going to know? Why would that even be a, a possibility of that coming up in conversation? But because it was so important to these Jewish Christians that they're trying to minister to, to trying to show that, look, listen to us. The apostles, the elders, we've gotten together. We have this decision that God has given us. You do not have to walk in the law to be saved. But they're not even willing to listen unless they know. And that's intrusive. I mean, can, someone, can you imagine saying, hey, I have this letter from the apostles. Are you circumcised? Uh... Yes. <laughs> Trust me on that. I mean, you know, okay, then we'll hear the letter. That's how crucial it was. So you and I as Christians, we have all sorts of liberty. The, the glass of wine with dinner, the whatever, the movie you watch, I, and I don't care because it's not my business. But when it becomes a thing where we walk in our liberties rather than love, that's where we deviate. It's, it's interesting that all the way back to Jesus, he's saying, Jesus is saying, look, the law and the prophets all hang on this one idea. So all the laws that there are, I love the crazy laws. You guys know me. Crazy laws, like if someone's had diarrhea in your house and they sit on this chair, you can't sit there until it's washed. If someone pukes into a wooden bucket, you can never use it again. You have to throw it away. I mean, these are the kind of the things that are in Levitical law. If you're walking down the road and you see your worst enemies donkey in the, in the ditch, you have to help him pull them out. All these laws, right? He says they all come down to this one idea. You love God and you love your neighbor. The law was just kind of the bare minimum of what love would look like. That you make sure that you don't infect people with bacteria or viruses. That you make sure that you help your worst enemy. It was just, it was the bare minimum. That's what it was. So Jesus, from the very beginning, lets us know, you know what the most important thing is? is to love each other. And how appropriate, right? As we've been mentioning, we've been talking about, realistically, until the early 1800s, widespread Bibles, those were not a thing. In the Middle Ages, you were lucky if your church had a Bible. So you didn't, you didn't have Max Lucado on K-Love every morning giving you your tidbit, right? You didn't get the, the devotional email every morning. You couldn't fire open your Bible every morning. That life didn't exist. So for Jesus to come along, so let me get this really, really easy for you guys. You need to morally, above all, respect God and do what he asks and love him. And then you need to morally, in every move you can make, esteem your brother or sister in Jesus as more excellent than yourself and to desire the best for them. You can really, obviously we love the Bible. It's a wonderful love letter from God. It's got history and science and math and, and the love of God. It, got, it has all those things. And it's it's, you know, we're not diminishing it. But we could, the church came before the Bible did. And if we simply love God and love one another, we just don't go wrong. So even in our liberties and all these things, it's great to have liberty, but we don't want to go to a place where we take our liberty, liberty 
and we trash our brothers and sisters with it. We just don't want to do that. We don't want to drink our glass of wine with dinner in front of alcoholics. That's not love. We don't want to insist on things that we know, in, in their case, it was meat sacrificed to idols. You know, there you are, this Gentile eating your French dip in the temple of Artemis, right? And a Jew walks by and jaw drops like, what are you doing? Like, no, it's cool. It's a, you don't have to, what? They're not going to be able to accept that. So that's the whole beginning of what this is predicated on. And then we move on from here and we're going to talk about their journey. This is, I think, our topic today is really being led of the Spirit, which I think is like the most disputed, challenging, comforting, scary thing in all the Bible. I think it's one of the hardest things that any believer has to do. What is the will of God? How can the Spirit lead me? How can I hear from God? How do I know it's right? What, what, you know, are there parameters for it? Are, you know, how can, is there some sort of like website I can go to? Is it, what, how do I do this? And so we see some pretty awesome things that take place, and hopefully we can glean some uh, clarity from the Scriptures. And it says here in Acts chapter 16 and verse 6, And they went, and that is Paul, Timothy, and Silas, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Myasia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing, passing through Myasia, they went down to Troas. And in a vision, excuse me, and a vision appeared uh, to Paul, and in the night a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So some things that we'll consider here in this paragraph, and then we'll move on to the next. So you have some very interesting and maybe even counterintuitive uh, ideas here through, from Luke through the Holy Spirit. He says that they came through Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, that possibly may be a little bit jarring. I mean, can you imagine if you, you have this full heart and you're like, bros, freshly circumcised, I'm with Paul, let's hit Asia. And the Spirit's like, no. What? The Spirit's forbidding me from teaching the word in Asia? How could that be, right? Okay, well, no problem, no problem. We'll just kind of head north and we'll, we'll, we'll go to uh, Bithynia. Nope, don't get to go to Bithynia. So we got really high tech today. We have maps. I know, I'm actually pretty darn excited about it. So we're going to show on the map like where this is all happening, and I think it will help us with a few things. Understand what God was doing in their time and their place and how they were working out, and maybe just for us to kind of understand where these places are and, and, and what's going on. So if we get the first map, someday I might have a pointer. I feel like that would be arriving, but today we don't. So this is, as it says, this is where Paul and Barnabas split ways. So remember, Jerusalem is about three, it's, well, it's 300 miles south of Antioch. It's down around here. And this is in uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So when they first leave, and we're talking about there in the beginning of chapter 16 and the end of 15, this is where the red line is where uh, Barnabas takes um, uh, Mark and he goes to Cyprus, his hometown or his home island, right? 
The green line is where Paul and Silas, they head north and go to Tarsus, all right? And so that's Cilia and Pamphylia. Let's go to the next one. So this is Tarsus. So we left off down here is Antioch. This is Tarsus, and this is the road. Now, I should say, uh, probably should have said sooner, a lot of these are going to be estimations, right? Because we don't know exactly how they went. These are based on old known Roman roads and certain uh, travel, uh, trade travels and so forth. So it's believed that for the most part, they stuck to those roads, all right? So they come up to Tarsus. The other thing to remember is that this is, if you look at your scale right here, this, we read it in six verses, but they're traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles, walking or by uh, donkey, if they're lucky, and then sometimes by ship. Not on the Royal Caribbean, but on like Roman and Greek-style uh, trade ships and so forth, okay? So they get to, oh, they get to Tarsus. Is that, is that a hint? I don't know. <laughs> so they get to Tarsus. They come up through Derby into Lystra. Now, Lystra is chapter, or excuse me, yeah, chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. That's where they meet Timothy. So they pick Timothy up there. Now we can go to the next one. So this is where we pick up Lystra, and this is where we're talking about how the Holy Spirit led them. So you can see Asia in the middle, my Asia, right? And then you have uh, Phrygia and then uh, Galatia. So they come up through there. Now you say, well, wait a minute. What's that Antioch? This is a different Antioch, right? Because the other Antioch is way down over here. This is kind of Antioch in what would be kind of a modern-day Turkey area. That's where that is, all right? So they come up through there. Now, remember, it says first they tried to go to Asia. It's that place right in the middle. So they're traveling north. They're going up. They, they tried to go into Asia. The Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go into Asia. So they take this monster right turn, and they, they're going to go into uh, Bithynia. Uh, Bithynia, excuse me. I always pronounce that wrong. Bithynia. So Bithynia is not labeled on this map, but see that strip of land up there by the, uh, the sea to the north? That would be Bithynia, okay? That's where they try to go the second time in the far north of the map, and the Holy Spirit forgive, uh, forbids them. So they go up. They try to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit says no. They take a right. They go, okay, well, we're going to go this way. The Holy Spirit says no, and then they cut back, and they go to Troas. Does that make sense? So that's where they're at. Can we get the next one? We're, we're just to tuck it away from Troas. In the next section of Scripture, we'll read that's when they take a boat to those places and they end up in Philippi, and that's where they're going to meet Lydia. So, so you can know the, the, the map beforehand is over here, and now they're, they're headed, continue to the northwest. Okay, thanks. So hopefully that can kind of help you kind of get a, an idea of what's going on. And, and also we can see a little bit more about the leading of the Spirit. That essentially the Spirit, it's not just this arbitrary, like don't go here, don't go there, but He actually forces them to go to Troas. So I'm going to propose something here. You can throw it right in the trash because it's just an opinion. But here in chapter 16 and verse 9 and 10, something changes, something happens. It says in verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the first time that we and us appears in the book of Acts. Why does that even matter? Because Luke has now joined them. So what's happened is the Holy Spirit, they had all these plans to go here and then to go there, but the Holy Spirit essentially, I don't want to say forces, 
because I don't think that would be accurate, but ushers them (laughs) to write to Troas, where they evidently meet Luke. And Luke now joins the, the band of merry men, as it were. And so could it be that this... Um, maneuver that this leading of God actually is to now bring Luke into the fold. And what is he going to do? Well, he's going to ask them all about what they've been doing, right? Luke is going to write, remember he wrote the gospel of Luke. In the beginning to that, he says says that he wrote to a a person. Some people say maybe it's not a person, but whatever, we're not going to get into that today. He wrote to someone named Theophilus, And he writes to that person, and he says that he compiled and interviewed all the witnesses. So Luke's account of the gospel is from him doing diligent work. Now, we know that Luke was some sort of physician. Paul refers to him that way as the beloved physician. Um, In Rome, the vast majority of physicians were actually slaves uh, because most physicians were personal uh, physicians of, of people that could afford them. So Luke writes this letter. Some people think Theophilus might have been his owner. But Luke lays out this gospel, and he sends it to them, and it was all based on interviews and eyewitnesses and all these things, led by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is very similar. He writes back and says, I'm writing this one so that you can know what the apostles began to do and to teach. He says, I'm writing you what they did. So here the Holy Spirit, possibly, okay, All we know is that Luke does show up at this point. But now all of a sudden Luke has access to the people that have been involved and intimately understand what happened in Acts chapter 15. Having this senate of can Gentiles be saved or not be saved. All of a sudden he has the horse's mouth as it were to talk about what happened with you and Barnabas. What happened here? What happened there? He interviews the players. He sees what's going on. And now he's from this point forward going to write from personal experience. Not for the most part, or I should say not in some parts. In in, uh, the next portion of Acts 16, Paul and Silas go to prison. Luke doesn't. So he writes about what they did. But from now, from here on out, evidently Luke is going to travel with them. So they pick up Luke and Troas, and all of a sudden the possibility for the, the book of Acts or the account of what's happening has now come to be. The other thing that happens is as they, uh, they have this, the, the vision, all of a sudden they decide, now we know what's supposed to happen. And I want to talk about this. Visions are dangerous. I am not saying that they are invalid. But the weird thing about visions and the weird thing about determining what a person we should do in our lives is that we can get a little crazy. Have you ever had a crazy thought before? Have you ever had an illogical thought? And so Paul has a vision, and what he says here is it says that we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In other words, Paul doesn't hold it out. It's this group decision. We concluded that this is what we're supposed to do. Does that make sense? The thing about visions is they're great and they're fine, but we can feel all sorts of different ways about things, can't we? Remember later on, there's a guy, he's, he's called a prophet, and his name is Agabus, and he's going to, it's actually one of, my funny, uh, one of my favorite funny parts of the scripture. Uh, I cannot imagine if it happened today. I, I, I would personally freak out. But Agabus rolls up on Paul and pulls his belt off him, which first you're like, whoa, what? That's personal space, man. This is America. What are you doing? And he pulls his belt on him, and he wraps it around his hands, and he says, 
this is what's going to happen to the man that wears this belt. And you're like, couldn't you just said it's me? I mean, why don't, but that's what he does. And then he says, you're just going to suffer all these things in Jerusalem. And Paul says, I know. In every city I visit, the Spirit is testifying to me that I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer. And I bring that up because that's kind of a negative prophecy, right? That's kind of one that's it's not, wouldn't be exciting to get, not something you really want to hear. You're more like, I have a prophecy. Uh, you never have to worry about money again. <laughs> Sweet, like this is great. That's a negative one. But how we interpret and how we think about things, they're really important. And the thing is, thinking can be thrown off by all sorts of things, right? Anybody ever said they're hangry before? You ever been hangry? What is hanger? Hanger is just low blood sugar, right? Your blood glucose gets so low that your brain tissue gets irritated, and so you begin to have different thoughts. You ever been watching TV and you see some advertisement for some drug, and like one of the side effects is if you have suicidal thoughts, contact your doctor right away. <laughs> like, what? I think I can live with, with uh, you know, some IBS. I think I'll be fine. You know. But the, it's a byproduct of a medicine to have suicidal thoughts, right? You ever had just had a, a certain prejudice just because you were upbringing? Thought a certain th- a way about things? Like, for example, and we'll talk more about open doors, but you ever, you ever had like a, uh, someone says, man, the Lord closed the door or opened the door for this to happen in my life. Well, have you ever heard someone else say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm a missionary and I know I'm called to X city, but I can't get my visa to go to X city. But I know the Lord's going to do it. And you're like, well, maybe it's a closed door. Or maybe it's Satan and he's just trying to stop you. Maybe it's warfare. Maybe it's the Lord. Maybe, what is it? Those are two perfectly valid interpretations, aren't they? I can't get a visa. Maybe this isn't what God is doing. I can't get a visa. Maybe this, God's telling me to wait. I can't get a visa. Maybe this is Satan trying to stop me. Which one's valid? Which one's not? They're all valid, right? They're all possibilities. And what we believe and how we've grown up and how we've been taught in the scriptures, that will all affect how we view those things, won't they? So the thing about visions and feelings about what God is doing, we have to be very careful with those. Not because God doesn't trust you or something to that or he's trying to get you, but because we're just weird and we're broken. And we interpret things through our life's history, our culture, our upbringing, our blood glucose level, our experiences. That's how we interpret things. And so when Paul has this vision and he comes back to Timothy and Silas and Luke and says, hey, I have this vision, they together concluded that it was the will of God to leave Troas and go to this place. So that we, the, to, to mix this in, we have no idea how the Spirit forbade them from going to those different places. It could have been bandits. It could have been a skirmish. It could have been uh, a vision. It could have been a word of knowledge. It could have been all sorts of things. So we want to be careful, but what we do know is the, the Lord clearly moved them in a direction where all of a sudden they pick up Luke and they're able to take a boat right from Churras to go where they need to go. Does that make sense? So when we're trying to work through the will of God, we're trying to, we feel like it. We say that a lot. We, we feel like this is what God wants. And I'm not, I'm not diminishing that, but when we just feel like something, let's incorporate people that we trust. Incorporate people that know the Lord, that love the Lord. I'm not saying you always have to rely on your pastoral staff. I am not saying that. But you have people in your life that, that you can go with these things. 
And so if you say, I have this vision, and some guy from Macedonia is saying, I need to catch the next flight and get over there, somebody around you might go, well, that's interesting. You know, what does your husband think? What does your wife think about that? Well, I didn't ask them. Well, you might want to consider that, right? Because your first ministry is to your family. And all of a sudden, well, I feel so strongly about that. Yeah, but the word says this. Feelings can be great and wonderful and ooey-gooey and mushy and fantastic, and they can take us to the worst places in our lives too, can't they? Jeremiah goes so far to say that the heart is deceitful above anything else in the world. That's kind of scary. It's nice to have other people who love Jesus and have the word who can say, that's a cool feeling, but this is what the word says. When someone says that to you, don't take it as an assault. That's kind of where we live in society right now. In society, I post something on Facebook or, or I post something or I say something, and if I don't get a thumbs up, you're against me. You don't love me. I'm offended now. Let's not be like that. Let's reject that kind of thinking. Let's reject that kind of feeling. And let's stick with truth and, and, and being able to interact and discuss and have friends. And let's listen to one another. Sometimes... We have to wait on the Lord. And one of my favorite verses out of Lamentations where Jeremiah says, it's good for a man, and that's women too, to put their face, literally their lips in the dust and wait for the Lord. And it's just that idea of just being bowed down, saying, Lord, what do you have for me? I'm not going to insist here. I'm not going to demand here. I feel like this is what you're doing. My brethren that I trust think I'm crazy. Help me work through this. Change my mind or change their mind. Lord, help us to figure these things out. There's safety in numbers. There's safety in counsel. And when you have people that are uh, around you that you love and trust, and they're contradicting what you're feeling, it's not because they hate you. It's because they love you. I don't know too many people. I mean, I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure all of us have had moments. They're just like, I'm going to troll this best friend of mine <laughs> with this life issue. I don't think that that happens amongst friends. The internet, it happens all the time. But amongst friends, I, I don't, we don't want to go to that immediate distrust. We can wait on the Lord. And we can wait on the Lord, you know, for things that, for other people's minds to be changed, for doors to be opened, all these things. Secondly, about this, as they pursue this, it's interesting because Paul makes some commentary. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, it was through an open door that was opened from the Lord. So isn't it interesting that we have in our scripture here that the Spirit forbade him from going into Asia, then forbade him from going, and the Spirit of Jesus forbade him from going into Bithynia, but he makes the point that it was an open door that brought him to Troas. So you have, the, you have this picture, right? The, the Lord opens doors that no man can shut and closes doors that no man should open. Some points about this. Number one, just because you can doesn't mean you should. This is important. The open door uh, policy, if I can call it that, is a good way to try to figure out what God is doing in your life. It is a good way. In fact, it's all over the scripture. Paul and Peter use that terminology four or five times throughout the Bible. Then God opened a door here. God opened a door here. But just because you have an open door doesn't mean you should walk through it. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. We have an open door. We could sell our building right now, right? The market is great. We could sell our building. I think last time I looked at TaxSifter, our building's worth like 550. We could sell it. 
and then we could give all the money to the poor and then save out like 20 grand and buy a tent and, and meet in that. And then we could just make the poor flush with cash and they could all buy houses. That's an open door to us right now. Should we do that? Probably not. Do you want to invite people to a church that has no heat in the winter? Do you think that they're going to come? Do you want to invite people that where there's no chairs and we sit on the floor? That might work in Africa, and that's fine. But in our society, people aren't going to do that, are they? They're not going to be interested. They're going to reject that. There's probably a million open doors to us right now with all sorts of things that we could do with our, our building, our money, or that you could personally do with your home and your money, but they're probably not wise doors to walk through, right? So just because you can do something, it doesn't mean you should. Note even just the nature by which... They were forbidden from preaching the word of God by the Holy Spirit in a location at a time. Think about that. If your brother or sister in the Lord came to you and said, here's the thing, man, I was going to give the gospel, but I just felt the Lord saying, no, don't give them the word. We'd be like, oh, I'm pretty sure it's in the rule book. I'm pretty sure in like Christianity 101, you go to the content, and or the, uh, the uh, no, it really looks stupid. What's the front thing page called? With the, but you turn... The contents, and, you, and, you, and it's right there. Make sure you give the gospel to everyone you see. In season and out in season. Be ready to give every man an answer. I mean, come on, First Peter. We know our stuff here. And so we kind of make this rule up, right? And then all of a sudden we have a situation. We pick up a hitchhiker or something like that. And we're talking to the hitchhiker, and we're like, I have to give this guy the gospel. But they're like not even remotely interested. Or a loved one at a family gathering. Not even remotely interested. And we're like, but my pastor said, oh, be ready in season and out of season. Oh, you know, my grandma said, oh, woo. Right? And, and, and it's like totally not the right place. And it's just weird. And this person is aggro. But we have this like deep anxiety, if that's even a word, feeling. We're like, I have to share the gospel or else God is upset with me. I mean, it says in Ezekiel 3, if you don't share the, the God with the wicked, their blood is upon their hands and the watchman on the wall. And oh, right? Anybody ever have that experience before? where you feel like you have to, and if you don't, you're unfaithful, and so then you give this like weird, sweaty face, like, oh, Jesus loves you, and don't be mad, and you can be saved, and you should repent from your sin, and God bless you, I'm out. <laughs> and it helped no one, and everybody in your family was like, whoa, that was weird. <laughs> right? Because we're just convinced, man, you always do that. And I'm not trying to give every, any of us an excuse to, to, to not give the gospel or to give in to fear about the gospel. But I'm making a point that it's, the reality is that the Spirit leads us. And sometimes it's the time to share a word, and sometimes it's not. Or even if you're trying to help someone, and you're talking through with something, and they say something uh, uh, unrelated to the topic that's just weird and wrong. And you just go, I'm not even going to talk about that right now, because it wouldn't help. It wouldn't fix anything. So I'm going to stay on topic here. We have to be, we want to be led of the Spirit. And so when you're sharing the gospel, share the gospel. Be bold with the gospel. We ought to. It, the gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ paid for sin at the cross. The fact that God became a man and invited us back into fellowship through a payment for what we owed for our moral failing. Not for what we do, but for who we are and then rose again from the dead so that we could have fellowship, that is what the world needs. That is what we need as a nation. It's what we need as a church. 
to, to, to be forgiven of sin, to have the Holy Spirit fill us, to be led and guided. That's what we need. It's the only thing we need. Everything else is secondary and temporary. But the gospel is eternal. So in no way are we saying, don't share the gospel, don't love the gospel. The gospel is not important. We're not saying that. We're saying, be led of the Spirit. Be listening to the Spirit. And share the gospel when it's, the, when it's time. And share it boldly. And share it fearlessly. We'll keep going. Kind of back to this open-door policy idea. Just because we, we, sh- we can doesn't mean we should. And so they have this opportunity. We can see that the Spirit prevents them from going southwest, then prevents them from going northeast, and they end up in Troas. They pick up Luke, and then the vision happens, and then they sail from there. So in verse 11, it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and, following, and the following day to Nepolis, and, there from, uh, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And if you're a history buff, I encourage you. It's pretty cool. You can go online or if you have, there's certain books. It's, the, the history of Philippi is, is very interesting. It was battled over uh, all the way from Alexander the Great on. But anyway, um, some people uh, think possibly that this is where Luke might have been trained. It's just kind of based on some history and so forth, this medical school that was there in Philippi. So he says there, um, we may, remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside uh, the gate to the riverside, where uh, we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman um, named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household was uh, as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is a great account. Lydia is a, a pivotal and a, just a wonderful uh, person that we see um, who ultimately ends up kind of facilitating the start of this church in Philippi. And how uh, she interacts with the apostles and what happens and how available she is for the work. It's just fantastic. So what happens here is they come to Philippi and there's no synagogue. Remember, they're constantly going to synagogues. They're going to the, where the places where the Jews congregate and Paul is normally uh, debating and making the assertion and showing from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. So in Philippi, there's no synagogue. It could mean, okay, so we're not going to be dogmatic. It could mean that the tradition tells us and some of the historical rabbinical writings tell us that if there were not 10 Jewish men in a city, remember this is far from, this is far from uh, Israel, uh, that, that uh, if there were not 10 believing men in a city, they wouldn't have a synagogue, okay? They just, they just wouldn't be. So you have to, I just admire and love these women, because they just say, you know what, either there's not enough dudes or if dudes aren't going to do it, we're going to get together and we're going to pray. Um, they could have been reciting part of the Torah, a lot of kids, mostly males, but they would memorize portions of the Torah growing up and so forth. There's very little chance, although she is quite uh, wealthy, uh, or apparently quite wealthy, very little chance they actually had scrolls or portions of the Torah. It most likely wouldn't have been available to them. 
But what happens is these women get together in Philippi, and it says that, they're, that Lydia specifically, but most likely all of them, is a worshiper of God. Now, this term, worshiper of God, other terms, lover of God, these things, they're terms used by Luke in the book of Acts three different times that denote someone who is a Greek, who's a Gentile, but has decided to follow Jehovah. Now, was she a full-fledged Jew? Was she not? We don't really know any of that. But she had decided, you know what? It's not about Artemis or Artemis. It's, it's not about Hermes. It's not Greek or Roman gods. It's not about it's, Jehovah is the Lord. He is the one true God. So that's kind of the implication of who she is. So you have this group of women, and they're getting together at the riverside. We also know from some historical uh, documents that it is uh, believed and widely that essentially where there was no synagogue, oftentimes people, followers of God or Jews, would gather in kind of beautiful places in nature, thus the riverside. So they're gathering by this riverside. It's a pretty place to be, um, you know, the babbling brook, I suppose, or whatever it might be. So they're there and they're praying. So Paul, whether he gets word of this or he asks around town or he just says, hey, that's a nice place. I bet people are going to be praying there or he's led by the Spirit. They decide when they get to Philippi after a couple days on the Sabbath, they're going to go to this riverside where they, they figured, they supposed there was a place of prayer. So they figured somebody's probably going to come here and probably going to pray. When they show up there, it says, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. So this little tidbit here, excuse me, um, a seller of purple goods and the fact that she says, come stay in my house, would for uh, historically would label her as probably a rich single woman. Um, she probably would not have called it her house uh, in that sense in, in, with the patriarchy that was prevalent. Purple was derived from basically squeezing to death one of a, uh, a certain species of um, shellfish and or a root from a rare tree. So purple was not uh, easy to come by. It wasn't a cheap dye. Uh, it wasn't, she's, if she's selling purple, she's like hobnobbing with the rich and famous, basically. She's, this isn't something that the common person would roll out and be like, hey, it's my anniversary. I put together a couple shekels. I'm going to get my wife a nice purple scarf. Right? That's, that's not real. If you're dyeing things purple, you're loaded. So most likely, the fact that she has her own house and the fact that she's selling purple, she's a woman of means. And she has a household with other people that are with her. Could be sisters, could be uh, you know, servants, whoever it is. But she shows up with her household. And it says that something happens here, that she's there and she was a worshiper of God. So she's proactive. She already loves God. And the word worship means to, to cherish God. And it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is important. The Lord didn't force her to get saved. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. This is a really key fact in determining the will of God in our lives, but also in being someone who can and who is willing to hear God. The Holy Spirit ministers to her in some way and says, you need to listen to Paul and to what these guys are saying. She then chooses to listen to what they are saying. God opened her heart. A lot of times, God wants to open our hearts to listen to what someone is saying. And in that very moment, the moment that we choose to either heed that or reject that, those are life-changing moments. For her, it would have been a rejection of the one way that salvation comes to humanity. 
for us, it could be that. It could also be a rejection of something great that God wants to do in our lives. What if Timothy had come along and said, uh, circumcision, no, bro, no. I think I'll just chill here. Um, I'll be fine. Thank you very much. Not going to do that. Then Timothy, would he still be a Christian? Of course he'd still be a Christian. Would he still be involved in God's work in some way? Well, of course he would. He was already there. He's already helping these people. They all spoke well of him. None of that would have changed. But you know what he would have missed out on? The rest of the book of Acts. He goes on to be a pastor in one of the hardest places to pastor ever. Paul writes back to him and he says, I know that everybody that you pastor is just out of control and crazy. He calls them Cretans. And he says, we all know that Cretans are brutish, crazy people. So he goes on to be this, this minister, this pastor in this incredibly tough area where God's using him and blessing him. All because he said, you know what? I'll suffer. I'll do that. The Lord spoke to him and he said, okay, I'll, I'll walk in that. The Holy Spirit is, I think, my opinion, constantly inviting us to listen. Not necessarily to me, per se, but just to listen to what he's saying, to what he's drawing us to. And the funny thing is, the more that we kick against the goads, the more that we say, no, I won't do that, it's just the more that we miss out on and the more miserable we get. Because we constantly think, if I preserve my life and what I want, then I'll be happy. But it's funny, that pursuit never stops, does it? We always think, if I just go over to the next hump, if I just get that thing that I want, if I just had that car, that career, that spouse, whatever, you know, whatever it might be, then I would be happy. And then we get that thing, and we're like, oh, this kind of blows. This wasn't what I thought it would be. It's how life works. And constantly the Holy Spirit is saying, listen to me. I have something for you. Listen to me. So Lydia, in this case, she comes. She's a worshiper of God. She listens to Paul. She evidently gives her life to Christ. And then verse 15, and she was baptized and her household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. A couple things about Lydia. What a great, great person. And so she gets baptized, and her household does, and then she urged us. And, you know, the word um, urge there, it, it means to appeal or to, to beg. And so she, she says, please come to my house. You know, the funny thing is, and I get a kick out of this, she, so she's just listened to Paul, she's just been baptized, and she says, if you have judged me to be faithful, like we've known each other for like two hours, so... If you judge me to be faithful. The other thing is, this is, a, she, this is a perfect example. She gives a perfect example for us to, to, to talk to and to deal with one another in the will of God. She doesn't come to her own merit and say, you know what? I'm rich. I have a household. I've listened to what you said. I'm faithful. I've got, I'm saved now. You saw me get baptized. Now you should do this. You should come to my house. This is what you should do. We're really good at telling other people what they should do, especially when it comes to the will of God, or what they shouldn't have done. Typically, we do that with our spouse after they're gone, but we're just really good at it, right? That person should not have done that. Or we're willing to tell people, you should do this. Can I just throw this out there? Be careful with that. A lot of times, we don't know what people should do because we don't walk in their shoes. I'm not talking about like the moral will of God. We should not treat people poorly. We should not murder people. We should, like, th there's a moral will that, like, I don't have to, like, get up in the morning and be like, I'm going to pray about not murdering someone today, right? I already, that one's settled. That one's done. I already know that one. 
But I can pray about the kind of the subjective will of God. What do you have for me? What, what do you want from me? And so Lydia comes to, this, to these guys. Think about it. She's a rich woman. She has her own house. Paul has no house. Luke's probably a slave. Timothy's, you know, walking funny. I mean, what is she? Who are these? She, they have nothing before them, right? She has all the power in the situation. And she says, if you've judged me faithful. In other words, she doesn't come to him like, I feel this way. I've seen this. I've done this. I have this. This is who I am. Now come to my house. We're starting a church in my house. We're doing this. She goes back to these road grimy dudes and says, if you found me faithful, will you come to my house? Please come to my house. That is the best way that we can relate to one another when we're figuring out the word of God and just in general. We never want to approach one another in some sort of authoritarian, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, and therefore you should. But instead to say, hey, you've gotten to know me now. Would you mind coming to my house? I have some ideas for the work, whatever she says. Maybe she just had a heart of service and said, man, this, this message is amazing. I just want to give you lunch before you go. Whatever it might, we don't know. But she comes from this place of, of radical humility. And the, the best part of it, it's like humility with force. Because it says there, and then she prevailed upon us. And the word prevailed, it means that she, she the, the root word is forced. And so she was like, I'm not taking no for an answer. So she's like, this place of humility, like if you judge, she's like, no, really, come to my house. Come to my house. We're going to have lunch. Church lunch, come to my house. Please come to my house. I want to hear more about this. Come to my house. And so they're like, okay, we're doing this thing. And so they go to her house. She is just such a great example of how to operate in the work. And really what happens is that this church is born. And they, they, they go back to this place of prayer, and then Lydia becomes kind of this, this, this person, this facilitator for this great thing that God is doing in Philippi. And it was never built on her merit or her husband or her whatever. It was built on her being a worshiper of God and her being open to what God had for her. That, that, that's all it was. God prompted her heart, hey, you should listen to this guy. And she was like, okay, I'll do that. And then she's like, sure, I'll let this dude dunk me in some river water. I'm in. I believe in Jesus. I want to show everybody I believe in Jesus. And I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. All through this, this, this humble spirit. And you've you got to love Lydia. She's just such a great example of it. So what's the, what's the point of all that we're talking about? Being led of the spirit, it can be tricky. It's not tricky because God is tricky or he's crafty or something like that. But tricky because we're just weird, broken people. And we can come up with all sorts of weird, broken ideas. And it's so important, whether it's a vision or a verse or a feeling or an idea, that we're those that are we're subject to one another. Hey, I got this idea. I'm thinking about spray painting Jesus loves you on the side of the trash trucks. Yeah, that might be a bad idea. It's a crime, for one, right? And some people may not appreciate that. Hey, I got this idea. I'm going to go to my parents' house and just lay into them with the Bible. Okay, you might consider praying and letting the Lord, you know, kind of sponsor something. No, I feel like I have to do this right now. As soon as we have that kind of weird urgency, it should be a kind of a red flag. That, okay, I need, to, I need to calm down. There's an urgency in the work, but we have time. Those guys traveled hundreds of miles. That's a lot of time just walking. That's a lot of time just, just thinking, just just go, what's going on? What are we doing? Hey, we'll stop in this town. We need to afford that kind of time. 
with one another and with the Lord. Like, what do you want from me? What do you have for me? What does it say in your word? What do my brethren think about this? I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to pray about it. Just because there's an open door doesn't mean we need to walk through it. And then lastly, when we're working with one another and we're laboring to see God's kingdom built, let's approach it with humility. Let's not demand of one another. I just got baptized. I'm rich. I'm all this. Now you should do this. No. Just say, hey, you know what? If you've counted me faithful, could we talk about this? Or have an idea for this? Or hey, what about this? And when we can approach one another with that way, it's going to be so much sweeter. What, what, what do you do when someone comes up to you and says, you should do this? And it's like kind of out of left field. What's your immediate reaction for the most part? Oh, that's cute. That's nice. You know, you know, the funny thing, and this is a true, you know, one of the things that we do here at the church is not to be spiteful or anything, but a lot of times people will be like, you should do this ministry. And we say, you know what, why don't you write up a plan for that? And then you can lead it and we'll help you. And then it's crazy because 99% of the time, it never comes back. And I'm not criticizing anybody or anything like that. We're, it was, it doesn't, it's not good to say you should <laughs> a lot of the time. It's way better to be like, this is on my heart. What do you think about this? How can we work through this? In your private relationships all the, all the time. And let's, let's, as Peter said, let's humble ourselves under the hand of God, the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt us in due time. Not exalt us like, we'll, you know, ha, 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 but just that we'll be with him, that we'll be exalted, that we'll, you know, experience his glory and be part of that. So let's, let's walk humbly with one another. Again, and, and you know, he, in, in Micah, in the Old Testament, in, the old, in one of the, the minor prophets, he says, you know, what is demanded of you, O man, but to walk with your God humbly, just to be before the Lord. And then, and then lastly, when we hear the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts, and he's calling us to, to drawing us to himself, let's walk in that. When we reject that, it only ends up in hurt for us and loss for others. He only has the best for us. Do not turn down when he beckons to you. It will not bode well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your loving kindness and your grace. Thank you for these examples that we have that are written aforetime for us, for faith and to build us up. And Lord, thank you for guys like Timothy and Paul and all these different people, women like Lydia and her household and Lord, examples for us. And we want to walk humbly before you. We want to do your will and we acknowledge that sometimes it's just, it's just hard to figure it out. Help us, Lord, to know what you have for us and to walk in it. Help us never to turn you down uh, when you're speaking to us. But, Lord, we pray that you would continue to speak to us. Lord, we pray, like, even like David there in the Psalms, Lord, we, we just ask that you would bring a brokenness about in our own hearts before you, that we would lay down our own pride, and we'd be able to hear you. Lord, thanks for being so kind to us. We acknowledge that every good gift that we have, everything good that's ever happened in our own lives or our church or anywhere, it's always been because of you. Lord, you're very kind, and we appreciate you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.